22 of the Confession of Faith. Entitled of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. We have eight paragraphs in chapter 22, and the first six are on the subject of worship and the Last two, seven, and eight are also on the subject of worship, but the Sabbath day particularly. So last week in paragraph one, I pointed out that this paragraph is speaking about how our worship is rooted in Scripture, which takes us back to chapter one of the Confession of Faith. Uh, We contrasted light from nature, which reveals God, and his attributes, um, but requires us, that requires that we have scripture as to how in particular to worship. And when we come to paragraph seven, in a few moments, you will find the same emphasis in the first sentence, as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. Um, so by his word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment, he has particularly appointed one day and seven. So the same idea that, that you have a general revelation which points to this, uh, that God is a God to be worshipped. Since he is a God who reveals himself, even in, in the creation, he is to be worshipped. But only the scripture can show us how to do that. We also talked about some important words that we use in English. Um, which are natural deductions from God revealing his way of worship. It is that then worship is limited by his revealed will or regulated. And when you, if you hear the phrase regulative principle, it's all it's talking about there. It's not something we've like come up with to add onto the Bible, you know, to make it more strict uh, or anything like that. It's just, it's just that worship is, is limited to God's revealed will. It's almost a natural, it's a natural and comfortable conclusion. And uh, prescribed in scripture, and we looked at Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, which says in a general way to God's revealing himself to the people, you know, don't add to it, uh, don't take away from it. And that's the idea. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. And that verse is mentioned at the footnote in uh, paragraph one. Paragraph two, we talked about Trinitarian worship. Paragraph three, uh, prayer. That was a beautiful short paragraph there. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to his will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. And then second paragraph on prayer is in paragraph four. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living. The all sorts of men is just a reference to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. But not for the dead or those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Paragraph five then, we talked about, oh, that's where we're coming now today, to paragraph five. All right, so 
Here we read, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. So these are some of the elements that were mentioned earlier. And in the same spirit as was described in paragraph 3 there, you notice where he says, it says, uh, with understanding, knowledge, faith, understanding means knowledge, faith, reverence, and godly fear, uh, solemn humiliation, fastings with thanksgiving upon special occasions after the pattern of, of the new, uh, you see some of these uh, humiliations and fastings in the Bible and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah particularly on special occasions uh, to be used in a holy and religious manner. <clears throat> so having talked about the our worship being regulated, regulated by God's word, uh, limited or limited, paragraph one, and so limited that is regulated by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible res- res- representation. So here, um, here again, you find this, the elements listed. Off comes the jacket. <laughs> Come out of the deep freeze. Here's the first evidence. <clears throat> so let's look at some of the verses that are appended to paragraph five here. Uh, I'll try to pick out the ones that are most significant here. First uh, Timothy 4 and verse 3 is the passage you will recognize it when we get to it, which is on the, we believe, the public reading of Scripture. First Timothy 4, verse 13. So Paul is speaking to Timothy here in verse 11. He says, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, and so on. So the word public is in italics, meaning it's just that's the sense of the passage is obvious. To give attention to reading, and of Scripture is also in italics, uh, but to the, the words in italics in, the, in an English translation don't mean they're just they're added there. It's just pointing out that from one language to the other, those words are not there in the original language, but the sense is there, and the translation is requires them to smooth them out. So otherwise, it would say, "Until I come, give attention to the reading." That's what, it would, that's what it says in Greek. Give attention to the reading. Well, obviously, the reading of what? Well, he can only be talking about the reading of, 
of the scripture. And if he's speaking to Timothy, he must be speaking about a public reading of scripture, um, which of course is what they did in the synagogue worship. And New Testament worship is patterned after the synagogue worship. It's as if, it's not as if, if God was preparing the world for, uh, for the coming of Christ and the change from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship, as the people were dispersed, they, 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 away from their temple, God in his providence brought about the phenomenon of the synagogues throughout the world, and, uh, and they worshiped without sacrifices, naturally, because there was no temple. And so they just naturally went to the things that were in the main warp and woof of their worship in the Old Testament, which was the word of God, Scripture. And uh, explaining the sense, as Nehemiah did when he gathered before the, the entire nation there uh, after they had returned and during the rebuilding. So these things stuck with them, and these were the things that they, that they had to do because there was no way that they could offer sacrifice in their, in their, their new setting, their new setting of dispersion. So until I come give attention to the reading of scripture to exhortation and teaching. So that means that in our public worship we that's why we read we read the scripture apart from uh, from preaching. Uh, it's it's and it makes sense too, doesn't it, that we should read through the scripture so that we in a, publicly uh, allow God's people to hear the word of God systematically. Um, and it, as it turns out, it's, it's, it's necessary because the preaching is more detailed, teaching is more, is more detailed, and usually I mean, there have to be subjects that you, that you, that you choose. Or, uh, so it goes parallel with the preaching and the teaching just to have the scripture read. Uh, and read, um, I mean, it's okay to read the scripture without comment. In, in, in some churches... Um, you're familiar that in some churches when in their worship when they when they some men when they read the scripture uh, they they give an introduction they'll tell you what the passage is about and then they read the passage right or they'll read the passage and they'll make some comments on the passage and that's fine too um, I don't do that because mainly just because it's just I'm, I'm here by myself and and it's just enough for me to 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 preach the sermon and uh and so, but there's also a, a good side to just reading the scripture without any comment, just to read it and let God's people be familiar, familiar with it, you know, from week to week. So, of course, the confession doesn't say anything about that. It just talks about the reading of scripture. And so does Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. Give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So he kind of lumps them all together. And, of course, in this in this book, he speaks a lot about preaching and teaching. So it's not as though he's separating it. It's just that he's, he's emphasizing that public reading is one element of worship. Have I confused anybody? So, so? Okay. Um, I, too, am getting off to a star today, right? I'm, I'm, I'm waking up, too, right? <clears throat> okay. So here, here, again, the reading of the scriptures... 1 Timothy 4.13, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So, so stop there for a moment. So notice there, these are the things that we do in our worship services. And one observation that I think, I think we would make is that all of those things together are pretty substantial. They would take up, they would fill up a, an hour or so of worship. Reading scripture, preaching, hearing the word of God. Um, prayer is not mentioned right here, but of course it's mentioned in the paragraph above. So that that also is an element of worship. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing would, would point, points to corporate uh, singing, singing together, okay? corporate worship through singing. Um, but that verse in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 also has application to, to our interpersonal relationships, uh, to encourage one another. Um, I mean, it doesn't, I don't know that it means that when you, you, know, you get with your, your friends in the church, your brothers and sisters, you know, that you, you, you sing to each other just to encourage them, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, but they're certainly admonishing one another Teaching and admonishing one another in those two passages is, is, a, is a broad Christian um, activity that applies not only in the public worship, but also in, in our communion one with another. But here in paragraph 5, it is, it is looking at public worship because then after mentioning these things that fill up our time, reading of scripture, preaching, hearing the word of God, which goes with preaching, teaching, singing, uh, prayer is not mentioned in this paragraph, but it's mentioned in the paragraph before that. A worship time is naturally a time of prayer, multiple prayers and a worship service, detailed prayers, and um, it also another thing that is not mentioned here is uh, giving of our substance or giving our offerings to the Lord, which is a part of our worship. Uh, that's not mentioned here in this paragraph either. So not everything is mentioned there as far as the elements of worship. Um, some churches, well, I know, I can't tell you how many, but I know of a few right now that I visited that uh, they don't have a, a public collection, you know, where you pass the plate. They just have a box at the back of the, in the lobby or back of the sanctuary, whatever you call it. And uh, people put their offerings in there. And that's fine, too. I mean, I think that I personally like uh, have liked over the years and gravitated toward, you know, passing, making our giving an act of worship, which, which collecting among the congregation by passing a plate uh, is, a, is, a, is the way, you know, is the way to do that. Uh, of course, now we have online giving, and I'm not opposed to that either, and that's just fine. I'm not uh, at all suggesting or setting this forth as a, you know, a pet peeve or anything like that. I'm, I'm just fine with it. That's just the world we live in. And, uh, however, you get the point, I think, that it is an act of worship. So somehow, when you give online, maybe you could make it an act of worship. You know, maybe uh, sing a song and uh, pray a prayer and... Uh, Read a scripture or something, I don't know. Uh, uh, so, I'll stop on that.
Well, I've talked for about 20 minutes nonstop. Any, anyone want to add anything to this? Anything edifying? Yes, no? Yes. Oh, okay, go ahead. Thank you. So let's move on then to uh, some of the other references that I mentioned here. I uh, particularly wanted to look at uh, the footnote and the last statement here. Um, with humiliation, fastings, uh, that's Esther 4 and verse 16. I referred to a passage like that earlier. And then um, thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. It has a a large uh, block in Exodus 15. So let's just look at that. Exodus 15, 1 through 19. Exodus 15, 1 through 19. This is the song of Moses. Familiar with this. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, and my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. 
In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The, the leaders of Moab trembling, the leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. So it's just using this song, which is a famous song in the Old Testament, to show uh, our response in worship should have, should have these elements. And even more so now, um, that we would, in our worship, be exuberant with praise and thanksgiving in our hearts, or if we have opportunity to stand and pray or praise in our worship service, which surely we could do more of that, we would be, we would be in, this, in this kind of spirit, just marveling at the works of God and praising him for the great power and the great wisdom that he has uh, exerted in our salvation. And, of course, that requires that we would be in the Spirit, uh, filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit prompts us to praise. It also mentions Psalm 107. You have the same reference here, a historical psalm, very similar to the Song of Moses that we just read in Exodus chapter 15. So paragraph 6, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth. John 4:21. As in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, Hebrews 10.25, when God, by his word or providence, calls to it, Acts 2.42. So this is a helpful paragraph just because it shows that the scope of worship extends all the way from public to individual, private, but also includes families and should be daily because in 7 and 8 it's going to talk about a specific day, the Lord's Day. So before it gets to that, it's emphasizing that, so you know that it's not just on that day, but it's every day. And the main text here that it uses, of course, is John 4, 21, Which is, as far as importance, it's certainly, it's certainly up there at the highest level, the statement of Jesus to the Samaritan woman, so profound, especially to her and her, you know, her limited understanding and, and also her, the baggage that she brought with her in her Samaritan culture and theology, where, um, which Jesus corrects. But Jesus said to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, an hour is coming and 
when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you worship the Father. Verse 24. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I was just reading a book this week on the Holy Spirit where, where the writer um, took the, the opinion that their spirit is Holy Spirit and truth is Jesus. And I'm uh, a little uncomfortable with that. I think that it's, I think the point to the Samaritan woman here is not to present the Trinity, but to point to the nature of God and the necessity of worship. In other words, God is spirit, small s. God is spirit, that's his nature. And that's our nature too. We are spiritual beings. So that he's talking about the place, you see. It's not in this mountain or that mountain. But it's in your heart. It's in your spirit. But if it was, it was, if it was solely by our hearts or by our spirits, we would you know, be like a ship without, it, without a rudder. And so it's truth. So spirit and truth. Now it's certainly true that your spirit... Is, is empty. It's, it's, it's empty. It has nothing unless it's filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is certainly there envisioned in, in what verse 24 is saying, but it's not the main reference. The main reference is that our worship should not be, not be based on forms or, or even supported by forms. Like uh, architecture, of course, is a big thing in church history. Uh, architecture... Um, has been created to help people to feel, or well, this is the idea, allegedly to, to you know, get closer to God because of the majesty of God inside the majesty of some structure, some cathedral or something like that with, you know, all the vaults and, and, and pillars and all the rest. And no doubt there is, there is a certain awe that comes to us when we go in places like that. Um, and they're not all Roman Catholic either, by the way. Um, in England, you go to St. Paul's, um, Paul's Cathedral, they call it. And so, so it's, not, it's not Roman Catholic, but it's, it's the same idea. <clears throat> so that's what paragraph 6 is talking about. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth. So that's the application of the John 4, 20, 21 and 24 passage. But also, in private families daily, Acts 10, 2 is listed, Matthew 6, 11, Psalm 55, 17, in private families daily, family worship, and in secret, each one by himself, Matthew 6, 6, go into your inner room, pray in secret, the idea in your inner room, in secret, by yourself, without anybody watching, and you're not trying to impress anybody, you're just there with God, okay? But more solemnly, in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected. So the public assemblies are, are um, critical. And in 1 Corinthians 14, you want to notice... The emphasis in the midst of all of the confusion 
that Paul is trying to correct and all the confusion we may have about the meaning uh, the meaning of some of these statements about tongues and all of the rest you know aside from all of that Paul talks about um, I don't have the list right in front of me here so um, for example okay so uh, verse 19 14 19 however in the church so he's talking about in the church in the gathered assembly um, verse 23 if the whole church assembles together that's the phrase we're looking for assembles verse 26 when you assemble each one has a psalm a teaching a revelation a tongue interpretation verse 28 if there is no interpreter he must keep silent in the church Verse 34, women are to keep silent in the churches. So these are all talking about assembly. And then notice the contrast in verse 35. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. So there's a a contrast here between in the churches, in the assembly, and at home. And so home is actually not the proper place to worship. Sorry, Mark and Lisa, you're there at home right now. but um, uh, And sometimes we... We do this, uh, expediency forces us to do this, but, but you never want to lose sight of the, of the principle that is stated here in 1 Corinthians 14, that assembling together with God's people is the way, is the norm, the normal, the normal way, the norm of the way, because worship is corporate. It's corporate. It's to be in one another's presence. And as long as we do that you know, enough each week, well, that's certainly good. Uh, but you don't want to miss that. And it's easy to miss that emphasis, especially in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where your main concern when you read that chapter is, what is he talking about? Tongues and mysteries and all the rest. Okay, so let's plow on. And uh, we'll talk about the, the locale, which is paragraph, I'm sorry, paragraph 6 was the locale. Paragraph 7 is the pattern. The recurring pattern. So as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath or rest. The word means rest, okay? Literally. For a rest. Or a Shabbat means rest. To be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. You have Revelation 1.10. And is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Paragraph 8 then speaks about the, uh, you know, the, the, our attitude toward this day and our activities, let's say. The attitude, the activities, paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy, that is, set apart to the Lord. When men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts, 
about their worldly employments or recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, some of the statements in, in, in that paragraph will, we need to talk about because people, I think, go way too far in misconstruing. Uh, and, and when they hear some of the language of paragraph 8, immediately label it as, you know, as a Puritan or, you know, well, that's not something that we can do today or a Puritan or ultra strict or something like that. And that's, that's far away from the actual intent or even the meaning of it. It's actually very reasonable. It's a very reasonable statement. It's a very balanced statement, and there's no need for anyone to, you know, to react against it. However, uh, people who, let's say, are considering uh, being part of our church and who uh, you know, may not be comfortable with language like that could easily then go somewhere else, so to speak. Uh, but I'm saying that now because we only have about eight minutes left, and uh, I wanted to talk about this systematically starting at paragraph 7. Okay? So those were just comments about paragraph 8 in advance of next week. Looks like we're going to spill over to a third week here. So I think that the the first sentence in paragraph 7 is kind of striking. Um, As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God so that's you know that's an interesting statement, and um, so it says what it means. It means what it says. Excuse me. Uh, it says what it means. I guess either way, it says what it means, and it means what it says. Uh, but you ask, you know, well, what what is this law of nature that it's talking about? You know that in Romans chapter 1, it speaks about general revelation as giving us, uh, we know God by general revelation, but where would you see in uh, general revelation that you should give this God, whom you see out there, a proportion of time? So uh, I'm just going to rely on what Sam Waldron says now, and we're going to go with that and uh, Uh, page 399, he says, The confession teaches that the law of nature requires an appointed day for worship. Several things should be evident, he says, several things should be evident by the light of nature. First, God must be worshipped by men. Of course, the light of nature makes this clear. Do, do you think so? Well, I'm just going to ask you just quick questions, you know, kind of yes or no without we're running out of time, but go ahead. I'm just confused about the, the law of nature. Can you define that? How is that being used here? The light of nature. Well, yeah, but before you said the law of nature. The confession teaches that the law of nature, okay, the law, the, the, the light of nature means, um, so the light of nature con, con, conveys knowledge, right? Psalm 19, it conveys knowledge. So you know something about God, so light. So this is just using the word law in terms of, if you know something about God, then then that's a quote-unquote a law, a, a, govern, a governing, it governs your thought. If you know something about God, it changes it to light of nature, which is probably better. But God must be worshipped by men. Of course, the light of nature makes this clear. I mean, is that a fair statement? 
Okay. So in other words, if you're you know you you don't know God in Christ, but you 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 believe there's a God there because you look at everything and you draw some proper conclusions about God, then what would be your natural response? Well, according to this statement that he's making here, it would be to worship this God. Interestingly, the heathen, that's their response, although they worship the wrong God. And they twist or they, they distort the, the God who is revealing himself and they worship the, crea- the creation itself. But worship is a natural response. So that's, that is something that is in Sam Waldron's first statement. Second, Waldron says, God should be worshipped publicly and corporately by men. Mankind is corporate. There is human society. Worship, therefore, must be corporate and social. He's saying, now, this is a conclusion that you draw from nature and not from the Word of God. The Word of God teaches the same conclusion, but he's just, he's just explaining the first sentence in paragraph 7. He's relating it to human society. So he's saying that people, the human race, responds to general revelation and says, not just an individual, it's not just the individual who says, I must worship this God, but mankind, he and his fellows. It's a fair statement. Worship, therefore, must be corporate and social. I mean, nature doesn't give you all the detail. To actually, if someone says, well, prove it, prove it, prove it, then, yeah, it's going to be hard to prove it. Three, third, such public and corporate worship requires a corporately agreed upon proportion of time. Such a proportion of time must be appointed by God because the only alternative that men should appoint it. The only alternative, which is that men should appoint it, would violate the prerogatives of God and his worship. So anyway, that's, this is Pastor Waldron's uh, explanation of that first sentence there. And however, you know, however anyone would state it is one thing. The real point of paragraph 7, however, is that obviously that's not sufficient. Whatever that nature does convey is not sufficient because he, by his word, set apart in a positive, should be a comma there, I think, positive or positive moral. Positive is one element. Moral is another element. And perpetual is another element. He set apart for the worship of God by his word in a commandment. This commandment is positive it's positive, so in other words, it's not like do not, um, you shall not, it's not negatively stated, it's not like you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. The form is positive. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. It's positive. It's also moral, which I think is important to stress because Each of the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't have no problem saying that the, the, the Sixth Commandment is moral. 
sanctity of life, or the seventh commandment is all about morality. It's moral, right? Don't commit adultery. Sexual sin. And stealing is moral. Lying is moral. Coveting is a moral issue. Honoring your parents. That's a moral issue, too. We keep going down the line now. We're going in reverse. But so what about the fourth commandment? Is that moral, too? Well, not everybody would say, would, would say that or see that. But it is. This is... It, Worshiping God on his day is, is, is a moral issue, just like all the other commandments. That's just the way the Ten Commandments are given to us. They're given to us as a unit, you might say in a, in a block. And they all have to do with our creation in the image of God. That God made us um, personal beings, rational beings. We have minds, also moral beings. Spiritual beings, you worship in spirit and truth. He also gave us creativity, and he, he gives to men a certain levels of authority. So the commandments have to do with all of these things. So he gave us, gave us in a positive, moral, number two, perpetual, which is something that not, not everybody agrees on. Okay, well, that's, that's the reality. Not everybody agrees that on that. With that, they would say... The fourth commandment is not perpetual, that it hasn't been rescinded by Christ. Um, but here our confession says otherwise. Binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. And then, then showing the history of it, that there is a change. The day is still one day in seven, that principle, the, the principle that one day in seven, the substance of worship is to give one day in seven. The day itself was changed from the last day of the week after the resurrection to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So years ago I wrote a little booklet, uh, Why We Worship on Sunday. They were downstairs, they may be out. But I explained the change from the seventh day to the first day. And with that, I will close and we will <clears throat> take our break. So, Father, we thank you so much for the confession of faith, the teachings on worship, and the Lord's Day. And we pray, Father, that you will stir up our hearts and minds to uh, receive your truth and to practice it. Thank you, Lord, for the time we can now spend together in fellowshipping and encouraging one another. And then afterwards, in our lunch together, Lord, help us to, to do that, to be an encouragement today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.